I'm old enough to remember when you needed a forklift to tilt the computer sideways. <laughs> 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 This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. Their upcoming course is JavaScript Framework Showdown with Brian Holt from Reddit. You can also get recordings of their previous shows like JavaScript The Good Parts, AngularJS, CSS3 In-Depth, and Responsive Web Design. Get it all at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Watch Me Code. Have you been looking for regular, high-quality video screencasts on building JavaScript done by someone who really understands JavaScript? Derek Bailey's videos cover many of the topics we talk about on JavaScript Jabber and are up on the latest tools and tricks you need to write great JavaScript. He also covers language fundamentals, so there's plenty for everybody. Looking over the catalog, I got really excited, and I can't wait to watch them all. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash watchmecode. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 113 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from Provo, Utah. Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we'd like to welcome back Reg Braithwaite. Hello from Toronto, Canada. So if people missed your last episode, do you want to give a brief introduction? My name is Reg Braithwaite. I work with GitHub. I'm known, I guess, for various blog articles and some libraries, mostly written in either Ruby or JavaScript. And what can I say? I'm a lifelong lover of programming and anything to do with it. Awesome. That's it. That's my resume. Very nice. Short, sweet, and to the point. We were emailing back and forth a while ago, and you mentioned that you might want to come on and talk about the community dynamics with JavaScript. And I thought that was a pretty interesting topic, and everybody else kind of agreed. So we brought you back on to have a discussion about the JavaScript community and, and some of the currents and things that are going on there. I'm curious, how long have you been involved in JavaScript and what parts of the community are you generally involved in? I go back actually a fair ways in JavaScript, way back to DHTML days. And in the earliest days, actually, I go back long enough to remember when it was LiveScript and Boy, I should have prepared for this because I could have told you the name of the... There was a book I read, which in fact recommended working with Tickle and with Netscape servers. And at that time, LiveScript was a server-side programming language. And simultaneously, I was working in a little consulting firm and we were kind of interested in all sorts of bleeding edge things. There was this new thing called JavaScript that was a really cool way to build dynamic things happening in the browser. So at that time, Java was what you used in the browser and LiveScript later became JavaScript, was what you used on the server. And of course, we've seen that completely flip over to Java on the server and JavaScript in the browser. And hopefully one day I will live long enough to see there being no Java anywhere. But <laughs> I think JavaScript has a much better shot of outlasting than Java does. I mean, there's kind of a renaissance of Java right now, though. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, this kind of touches on communities and, you know, the lifespan of products and the lifespan of companies. I see Java as playing defense, whereas I see JavaScript is still playing what you might call offense. Now, Java is the JVM as well as Java the language, and the JVM has much longer legs. You've got interesting things like ClojureScript and Scala and so on going on the Java virtual machine platform. 
But Java, the language itself, you'll see some blips here and there, but my bet is that they're playing defense. They're trying to prevent projects and people from defecting to other languages. And all of their stuff, like adding lambdas and so on, I believe it's all organized around trying to protect their existing install base and their existing mindshare as opposed to trying to recruit new people. That's my perception of the dynamic there. That makes sense. Um, whereas over JavaScript is, I feel, still a bit of a balance. I think it's beyond it's we're trying to convince people that it's worth programming in this language. I think there's a balance. Some of the ES6 stuff that we've seen recently is, in my opinion, much more defensive than offensive. It seems to be more about copying things from other languages in order to prevent people from saying, this is stupid, this is brain damage, and a little less about trying to invent the future, which is fine. But, you know, it is, if it continues to trend in that way, it will end up being a defensive language. There'll be new languages, like, you know, everyone will realize that Scala traits are an incredibly good idea, or that copy on write with immutable data structures, as are common in the closure community, are a good idea. And people get excited about that, and then suddenly there'll be ES7 will have support for these things baked in or something. And it'll be a very reactive process. And, and that's usually the sign of a company playing defense, of the General Motors, you know, as opposed to a Tesla. Again, in my humble opinion. And I think it's kind of interesting to watch this transition. I myself have been really excited about some of these moves and disappointed about other ones. So I'm I'm a little curious. It seems like... Just like in any community, there's like the overall community where, you know, people like the language, they like certain aspects of the language, and then there are other people who kind of generate their own communities around different things that, you know, like uh, Express or Node or front end, you know, like Angular, Ember. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little curious, what do you think about those? It, it seems like you know, the, the smaller communities sometimes refer up to the larger communities and sometimes they don't? I think that's a good, a good assessment of the situation. JavaScript itself is a rather sparse language, and I believe that this accentuates the balkanization of a community because it's uh, relatively easy to reach a point where you think that you have a complete handle on the language and not need any help from people to explain how, you know, function.prototype.call works or something. But something like jQuery or Ember or Angular, you can spend a lot longer reaching a point where you feel competent. I'm not saying that you are competent very quickly in JavaScript or that you aren't competent very quickly in Angular or Ember. But I believe the perception amongst most people is that the language itself is fairly easy to get up to speed on, but most of the bigger frameworks and so on take longer. And as a result, people probably perceive that they have a larger investment in jQuery or Angular or Ember than they do in JavaScript, the underlying language. So they probably, I'm speculating here, I'm, I'm not authorized to speak for, you know, Ember devotees or anything, but my feeling is that this is what leads people to identify very strongly with a particular framework or technology. We saw a similar thing with Rails and Ruby. There were lots and lots of Ruby programmers and then Rails came along and it was good enough, but it was also big enough and I believe the word is opinionated enough that you could end up having people wander around saying, well, I'm more of a Rails guy than a Ruby guy. And I don't think anyone would ever look at something like this micro frameworks like Camping or Sinatra and say the same thing. Whereas over in JavaScript, it seems like all of the frameworks have this flavor of being so big and so opinionated relative to this tiny little language that people identify themselves more with the tool than they do with the, the language. 
Now, I want to tie this back to the offensive and defensive thing that you were talking about a minute ago. Does this tend to draw people into the language or push them out? Well, it's really interesting. I think the defensive moves are there to, to protect people from defecting from the language. Because, you know, when you first sort of fall in love with something and you're in your honeymoon, it's very easy to gloss over irritants. You know, when you're first falling in love with Java, you can really do, you know, when people were saying blah, 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 lambdas and functional programming, you can just quote some sort of um, cliche thing back at them like, well, a closure is nothing more than an inside-out object, and an object is nothing more than an inside-out closure. So, you know, there's really just the same thing. And so, you know, my, my language has objects, yours has closures. You know, I'm not that impressed by your functional programming thingy. But then after you've been using it for a while, you begin to feel irritated by some of the ways in which not having a closure is holding you back. And then a funny thing happens. Some other language gets a killer application. So if you look at something like Ruby, you know, you could look at Ruby when you're a Java programmer for a long time and not really care about it. But then when Rails comes along, it's not just the language, but there's this wonderful thing built out of it that you feel jealous of because struts is terrible. And then you or spring. And then you notice the connection that the language's features actually made that other thing possible. Then you really begin to feel the lack. And I think a similar dynamic is going to happen to JavaScript, that if you say to me, well, Python has generators and JavaScript doesn't, and you say, well, CoffeeScript has kind of comprehension, a different feature from Python. CoffeeScript has comprehensions and JavaScript does not. You know, you can kind of shrug and not care about it for a very long time. But if somebody builds an entire framework where, you know, generators are kind of like built in and become part of the thing, or they build a framework or comprehensions, a coffee script framework or comprehensions are built in, you know, and really sort of fundamental to, to its magic, then you start to chafe about using vanilla JavaScript. I think defensive moves like copying things from other languages prevent you from chafing. Even if they haven't been announced yet, it, uh, it serves like Microsoft. Well, it'll be in the next version of Windows. So right now, ES6 is hardly here. You can sort of play around with some of the features in Node and, and there are shims and so on, which you really can uh, live with the idea that if there's any one particular feature that people are crowing about, well, it'll be in ES6 and that, that'll be around eventually and feel very happy. So I think the defensive moves do have to keep people in place and prevent them from saying to themselves, oh, this is terrible. I really have to move along. I think a number of these things there are features in other languages, static typing, strong static typing, immutability, lazy evaluation, and so on, that are very powerful, but they're not that persuasive because nobody has done a really good job of holding up like a, a Haskell framework or something like that and saying, look at this awesome thing that we built with this that you can't even think about doing in JavaScript. But if that were to happen, then people would probably clamor for those features in the language. And the standards committee would, would have to think long and hard about whether to include it the next feature of the language. That's how I feel about defensive moves. Does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. So JavaScript comes from a weird place traditionally because if you wanted to develop applications in the browser, you were trapped on a desert island and JavaScript was the only palm tree on the island, right? Like you had no other choice if you wanted to use something. So I wonder if that kind of hid some of the selective pressure on JavaScript, so it didn't need to evolve as much. But now there's this proliferation of transpilers and compile-to-JavaScript languages. 
which have already influenced the language. I mean, I, I wonder if it's feeling the pressure more now because there's more choice, where before there wasn't really any choice. You had to use JavaScript in the browser. Well, I think uh, you're very correct. And this phenomenon has been noticed before. Again, I should probably have a source, but I remember maybe even a decade ago, people saying that every successful programming language was once the scripting language of a successful platform. And uh, I love that you source is your memory. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I can't remember who said it. <laughs> I have to Google it. But, but yeah, that has proven to be the case for everything. You know, COBOL, C, you know, on PDP, 11 machines, you know, everything, or sorry, C on Unix, and, you know, moving away for basic on practically everything, on Windows, the Excel macro language, everything we do, the really big successful languages, all ended up being part of a monopoly. Sorry, I was just trying not to say the word monopoly, because the correct <laughs> word is duopoly, similar to the Wintel duopoly that we saw for decades. Successful languages are form part of a duopoly. Ruby is the programming language for Rails, so Rails success is Ruby success, and Ruby success is Rails' success. And as you pointed out, JavaScript was part of the browser duopoly, so the two work in concert to freeze everything else out. If you're a JavaScript programmer and you need to make a desktop app, you often go to your corporate overlords and say, you know, it would be so much easier to deploy and manage this app if it ran in a browser. And if you have browsers, you say, it's so much easier to write a JavaScript app than to try to shoehorn, you know, an applet or something else or a flash into it. And the two things work in tandem to support each other. So now, as you pointed out, there are options. There have been options for some time, but now there are more options, especially transpiling to JavaScript. Uh, we have uh, ASM.js. We have, I think, the LLVM compiler backend can compile to JavaScript as well. So technically, Apple's new Swift language uh, it should be possible to compile some set or subset of it to JavaScript. So the pressure will definitely be on it. I believe the dynamic will be similar to the dynamic we see on the JVM, where other languages, yes, will take chunks of sort of market share in the browser and on Node. I don't know that any of them will displace JavaScript, just as things like Scala have not yet displaced Java, and not for the you know lack of trying. But that's just my guess. So I do wonder, though, you know, JavaScript, you know, you say a lot of these features are defensive, and Jameson rightly pointed out that JavaScript is basically the option in the browser. I mean, you can write in other languages and then transpile to JavaScript, but then it, essentially you're still running JavaScript. So I have to wonder a little bit, how defensive do they really have to be in JavaScript? And then the next question is, what features have they added to ES6 that you see as defensive as opposed to you know, others that are just being put in there for convenience sake? I actually believe that, that they do have to be extremely defensive. You say, well, it's in the browser and it's everywhere, so, you know, it's a slam dunk. However, we're on a knife edge. It may not appear that way, but if you look at something like Safari, if Apple decided that Swift was an alternate programming language for Safari and then preached to its large iOS user base that they could use one language to compile both iOS applications to compile the way dynamic content would work in a, I forget what the NS web frame view or web mm -hmm. view or something. I forget the exact thing that it's called when you embed what amounts to a, a web page inside of an iOS app. If you had that same app thing, if your app needs to have, I use Haiku Deck for a lot of my presentations and it's they have UI both web a view. web app. 
UI web view, right. So HyperDeck has an iOS app, and it also has a web app that you can use to edit your presentation. And if, you know, Apple one day called everyone to WWDC and said, look, Swift runs in Safari, so you can reuse a lot of your same technologies and so on in your iOS app as well as your web app, that would be extremely compelling. Likewise, what would happen if Chrome went to people and said exactly, uh, Google that is, went to people and said exactly the same thing about Chrome and whatever language it is that Google feels like pimping this month, perhaps Go, perhaps some, something else that they want to get behind and said, you know, everything on Android, everything in Chrome, whether it be in a Chromebook or, or anything else, are all going to run this one let this one new application language that we are promoting. So it's still run JavaScript, of course, but you can also use this other language and get this cross-platform capability. That would be very persuasive. I feel that the JavaScript language people, TC39, I think is the committee name, Mozilla especially, that's trying to keep it open, cannot rest on their laurels and just say, hey, you know, we have a monopoly or half of the duopoly and we can just do whatever we like. I think that they do have to make sure that the option of trying to replace JavaScript in the browser for these big, ginormous, multi-gazillion dollar corporations, Google and Apple especially, that it is unattractive to them to try to displace JavaScript. I can kind of see your point to a certain degree just in the fact that uh, I remember back in the day when I was much newer to programming in the browser, you know, uh, Microsoft had a whole bunch of custom events and things that ran in Internet Explorer. And so if I was trying to deal with something from one person or another and they had used one of those, then it wouldn't work when I went over to use Firefox. And so it could segment things and, you know, make the web a little bit less friendly, I guess. Many people forget, but there was a time when, when Microsoft was actively trying to do this exact thing and very aggressively pushing their ActiveX technology, mm-hmm. which was not just a competitor to... Java applet, but it was also core to their desktop application technology. It was, it was all integrated, and that was precisely their selling point. Hey, developer, you, you know, you can use the same tools on the desktop as in the browser. You can build ActiveX things that talk to the server the same way your corporate desktop applications that you're deploying out across, you know, thousands of seats in your company work. You know, their vision of the future was exactly that. Internet Explorer, ActiveX, that you do your banking in an ActiveX container, that would be able to do stuff like secure your communications. I mean, today we just say SSL, which we now know to be less than ideal. But, you know, their pitch was that you could do things like secure things with cryptography that might be difficult otherwise, or work within your own bank-specific systems already. There was a time, you know, it may seem silly today, but there was a time when people were unsure whether the open web would succeed. I would say that we beat back that battle, but that does not mean that there are no further battles to be waged. We should talk about something optimistic. I'm beginning to feel like Cassandra's report. <laughs> <laughs> forecasting doom and gloom. <laughs> I had a question. I was talking with a friend on Twitter the other day, and he mentioned that he was active in the Ruby community, but he felt like the JavaScript community was a little harder to feel like a part of in the same way. And I think it was getting at the fact that it seems like there's kind of a core group of speakers and conferences and locations that all kind of click together. I mean, you have this in every language to some degree, but do you think it's more or or less in JavaScript than other languages? Or what do you think about that? That's a great question. If it helps your friend any, I've spoken at a a handful of JavaScript conferences and they seem to like me. 
but I've never felt like I'm part of that insight group. I know what your friend is speaking of. There seems to be these, you know, cool cats, uh, well, why cats, you know, people who are working on stuff like Ember and so on, uh, John Ressig and Dave Herman, you know, who's like a triple genius. I think I recommended his book the last time I was on here. Sorry about the knocking in the background. There are some renovations next door exactly on the day that we're doing JavaScript Jabber. But, you just got to let the prisoners out of the basement. <laughs> <laughs> no way. I've got a half a dozen consultants in 3D suits down there, and I can't let them run havoc. Um, <laughs> but getting back to the community, it certainly appears that way from the outside. However, even though I feel like I'm not one of them, I'm speaking at conferences, and people read my essays. I think, although it may appear that way, that the massive middle class of JavaScript programmers who Reddit or Hacker News or wherever they get their blog posts and so on are eager for new content and are not, oh, I've never heard of you. I'm not going to read your essay. I think they're very open-minded. I think people are excited to follow you. If you have a little, you know, follow me on Twitter button on your essay and they read it and they like it, they'll follow you on Twitter and you'll get followers. If you write a book and people like it, they recommend it to each other, even though you're not one of, you know, the JavaScript crews. So I'm not trying to invalidate your friend's kind of feelings and perceptions from the outside, but I would say that my experience has been that the community as a whole seems to be very open to new people coming along and, and sharing ideas and sharing experiences with each other. In any group of people, there will be people who get more fame or infamy or, or more popularity or whatever. But my experience has been there's always friends who write JavaScript, and you don't have to be popular just to like talk to your friends about the programming language. It's still enjoyable to me. I don't know. The internet, Twitter, Hacker News, Reddit, these things have an interesting effect community-wise in that, on the one hand, they do tend to exacerbate the kind of winner-takes-all popularity contest thing, where you can get someone like a Jeff Atwood with over 100,000 you know, followers. I don't know what he's up to now, or Scott Hanselman or any of these others, you know, sort of superstar blogger type people. And things like Hacker News and Reddit have this massive magnifying effect. However, the internet also provides this massive long tail so that while it hasn't changed the fact that, you know, a few people are going to clean up nearly all of the sort of attention that you may care to measure, there's still plenty to go around and there are still plenty of avenues for small people to get something. If you compare this to uh, maybe 25 years ago, I remember when developing software, things were, at that point, it was the shrink-wrap software business uh, was kind of dominant on personal computers. And if you did not get distribution, you got like none of the market. There was no long tail. There were some early shareware things and some mail order stuff, but it was like scant, scant picking because the distribution kind of the middlemen of distribution kind of locked things up. You had to be able to go to, I think the companies were called things like Maricel, I think was one of them, a big, huge distribution company that sold to like all the various computer stores in chains. And if you didn't get them to like carry your product in their catalog, you were like a non-starter. Mom and pop computer stores were not going to call you up directly for you to ship them, you know, a physical box. And Amazon is trying to do this now with bits where they become, you know, the sorry, not with bits, with atoms. But the... We're not in the Adams business. We're in the bits business and there is disintermediation so that, yeah, you can listen to something like JavaScript Jabber and you can say, yeah, I have a question for Reg. You know, let me look up his Twitter handle or let me look up his email address. And let me just email him, you know, and I might take me a while to get back to you, but I'll probably get back to you eventually and, you know, answer your question. There's no, the friction has been taken out of it 
so that although some people will be superstars, that they can't occupy 100%. Even a determined clique of oligarchs, of information oligarchs, cannot occupy 100% of the mindshare. And there will always be a small slice and a small opportunity for people to talk, whether it's to each other or to the entire world. And I find that very, very, very exciting about this particular time that, that we're alive and active. I think that is rad. Yep. We're doing it right here, right? <laughs> How many millions of dollars were invested in this radio station that you built? Uh, not, not, yeah, not many. Exactly. How exciting is this? Honestly, 40 years ago, you'd have had to like buy radio time or something or buy your own radio station to just talk on the air and give your opinion. You'd have to be Rupert Murdoch, but you don't today. That is rad. Absolutely. I value Chuck's time at a million dollars an hour, so a lot of millions of dollars have been invested. (laughs) There you go. Uh, I wish I could find more people who would value my time at millions of dollars. I value it at that, but I can't pay that rate. When you're on your deathbed, you'd gladly pay a million or more for another hour. (laughs) Yep. That depends on how tired you are, I think. (laughs) We'll try to keep this lively so that nobody's in that frame of mind. (laughs) Yeah. I think going back to the discussion over the different communities within the JavaScript community, I think there's a lot of people looking for people like them, you know, so there really are like the front end folks and the back end folks is really the largest, I don't want to say division, but dichotomy, I guess, between developers. And sometimes people don't always know where they belong. And that's something that I have seen in the JavaScript community. So it's like, well, where do I go to learn more about JavaScript? And the answer is, well, that depends on what you want to do with it and, uh, you know, what areas you're interested in. And then even within the the web groups, again, we have the different frameworks, we have, you know, different agendas and things like that. And and so it, it is kind of interesting to try and get somebody into the community and push them in the right direction and encourage them to get involved when you're not really sure where the best fit for them is in the community. I agree with that. In addition to, obviously, the Node community is this like massive thing that just works on the back end, you might say. There's obviously a huge group, which are really kind of the Ruby slash JavaScript community, who work uh, typically in Rails, you know, on the back end and JavaScript on the front end, and are very sort of familiar with making those two things talk to each other. But they sort of like, I'm new, I don't know where to fit in. What I find interesting about that is there's this massive, like, you know, if I tried to describe all the people in the JavaScript community, I'd probably only be describing the part of the iceberg that's visible above the water. Mm -hmm. Because there's a massive number of people who, if you ask them, wouldn't even use the word. They wouldn't even say, I'm a JavaScript programmer. To them, they're just trying to get something done. And JavaScript is the way you get it done. The same way if you said, hey, are you a Git guy? I'd say, well, I work at GitHub, and obviously I use Git all the time, but I'm not a Git guy. It's not part of my self-identity. I don't, you know. And I think there's a lot of JavaScript programmers who are exactly like that. It's in the browser. It's what you need to do to get something done, but it's just not part of their consciousness. They don't think about JavaScript in the shower. And there's probably like 10 or even 100 of them for every one person who reads like Reddit slash R slash JavaScript or I recommended a book the last time I was here. I'm going to re- recommend, hopefully, a different book this time. I forget which book I recommended last time. But if we took all the JavaScript books and then went out to all the people who program JavaScript, let's even say that that involves a paycheck to narrow it down somewhat. And then how many people here have even read a JavaScript book? I would guess that maybe 10% of the people who program in JavaScript have ever read a book, any book about JavaScript. 
Most of them, I think, you know, do web searches. You know, CAN has codes. They go to W3 schools, you know, to get tips, and they just kind of muddle their way through. And are they part of the community? They're users. They're involved. Could you say they're not part of the community because they don't have a social self-identification? Or would you say they are part of the community, but they're just part of like a lost tribe wandering in the desert because nobody has grabbed them by the elbow and said, hey, come on, come on over here. We welcome you. We want to talk to you. We want to help you. That's an interesting perspective. Lost tribe wandering in the desert. Yeah, he's been well, watching kinda, me code jobs. Right? <laughs> well, I kind of got that from Jeff Atwood. There's many things we disagree about, but on that one, we're both in solid agreement, which is that the people who care about programming form a bit of a bubble, but it's not a large bubble. It's not the, even the majority of the people who program. The vast number of people who program don't read any blog. They probably only read a book if they're forced to read a book. But, you know, they program for their job and that's it. And then they play Call of Duty or whatever on their computer, but they don't care. And finding out a way to reach them, and there's probably nine or ten of them for every one person who, you know, reads a blog post or gets on an IRC or goes to a conference. So if you're part of that group of people who care, you listen to podcasts, you talk on podcasts, you know, we're still, you know, we're like the one percenters, at most 10 percenters of the, you know, total sort of market, you know, a group of programmers. And those other people are sort of the, the huge upside opportunity for making the world a better place. Those are the people for whom you reach out and give them a tip about how to make web applications more secure. And it's like, boom, the world's a better place. You give them a tip about how to make programming better that will save them some time and make life less frustrating. Boom. The world's a better place. You know, if I could just reach out and whisper to them, JavaScript jabber, the world would be a better place. I just don't know how to reach them. <laughs> Telling them about it on JavaScript jabber obviously isn't going to do it. So I have one more area that I've noticed quite a bit in the JavaScript community, much less so in other communities. And that's kind of this, I'm not sure what the right term is, kind of the hobbyist or hacker group. And what I mean is like, there seem to be more people in JavaScript than the other communities that I talk to that are into things like robotics. You know, in fact, there's a whole robots conf. And then there's, uh, you know, this put on by the same people that put on JSConf. And then there are other groups that are out there that are about Raspberry Pi. And, you know, you get Node on there and you do cool stuff or some other JavaScript interpreter and do cool stuff. It just seems like the JavaScript community has embraced that a lot more than the other communities. And it adds a really interesting flavor, I think, to the JavaScript community. I agree that it does add an interesting flavor. This is kind of, uh, you know, my sort of umbrella term for them are the node copter people. You're right, it could be Raspberry Pi, it could be something else. But, you know, just this, what's the most outrageous thing you could do with JavaScript? Then they think of something, and then they do it. You know, it's, and if it hasn't already been done, it's only a short matter of time before someone tells me how you can program devices in Minecraft with JavaScript. There is this kind of weird, like, port it to everything everywhere. And uh, yeah, I wish I could get plugged into that. It sounds like a place where I would just quit my job and play full time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, the, sort of the, the internet of things is, you know, just like the world of programmers is much larger than the world of programmers who listen to podcasts and read blog posts. The internet of things is way larger than the internet of tablets, phones, and computers. And finding ways to reach out and touch those things is going to be awesome. Like, it's insanely stupid that there are thermostats, there are smart thermostats, 
You can go out and spend a bunch of money to have Google stick a monitoring device in your home now and buy a Nest. But we really need like completely open thermostats running stuff like JavaScript so that people can, you know, make their own applications, trade applications, upload applications to GitHub, plug, plug. It's just the idea of having all these proprietary devices that have microcontrollers. And, you know, some of these things have computers more powerful than my toaster is probably smarter than my first computer. Why is it that I can't program in JavaScript? It would be incredibly cool. I'm not sure what I'd do with it, but I'd do something. Or I'd get download an app that somebody wrote that does something. You know, yeah, that's, that's a super exciting area. That's rad. And we need more of it. So that's probably my favorite thing about JavaScript. I do real work for a living to make money. And then I go home and I do stupid things that could never possibly be valuable, except for people to laugh at or get some enjoyment out of. And it's so fun. I was thinking about that while you were talking and, and why that seems to happen more in JavaScript. It's not only JavaScript, but I agree with you, Chuck. It seems like it might be happening more in JavaScript than in other language communities. And I don't really know the answer. It's not a size thing because there are large armies of C and Java programmers. And, and I don't know. It's not just a numbers thing. I wonder what it is I, about I, JavaScript specifically that encourages that. I think there's certainly some uh, things about JavaScript itself that lend to it, but I don't think they answer the entire equation. One is is that anybody who does anything on the web deals with JavaScript at one level or another. And so it's probably one of the most ubiquitous languages out there, you know, that people already know. And then the other thing is is that you have this system, in particular Node.js, that you can pull into basically any system that you can compile C on and on some systems that you can't. And, uh, you know, you put it on there and, you know, it doesn't take an incredible amount of resources to run it and you can do interesting things with it. And so I think, you know, putting it on Arduino or Raspberry Pi or things like that, it's not incredibly difficult. But I don't think that's the whole equation. I think there's something in the mindset of the community that makes them want to hack on it. I don't know how to quantify that. Well, I think it's, I don't know. I, I know what I'd like it to be. I don't know if it is, but when Ruby was designed, allegedly one of the values espoused, not allegedly, Max has said it many times, was to create joy for programmers. And JavaScript, certainly Brendan Eich has never said that that was his motivation, but there are a number of people who appear to delight in doing weird stuff with it, both in the language itself, like I know myself, I've fooled around with all sorts of combinators and stuff. And other people have done, you know, things that are almost like, you know, art projects. And when people have a certain mindset towards the language or any language or tool that they enjoy working with it, then they are more likely to work with it in their spare time and do stuff. You know, they are more likely to be, uh, there's an architect that lives up the street from me, Nathaniel Gray, and he loves to work on building his own house, designing his own house. You know, he doesn't hate architecture. He loves architecture. He just does it round the clock. It's just, some of the time he's on somebody else's clock and getting paid for it. And some of the time he's doing it for himself. And to me, this is a very high form of self-actualization. If somebody works in the financial district, to pick, I'm picking a complete stereotype. I'm not suggesting all people who are in business are like this. And they make money and then they take the money that they make and take a in Toronto. A typical thing they'll do is they'll actually pay a large amount of money be able to take a float plane up to Cottage Country in Muskoka so that they can, you know, go fishing, you know, on a special kind of fishing boat. 
what are they doing? They're basically taking the surplus, the time that they don't have to spend hunting, gathering, and protecting themselves with their family, and spending it on a mindless, unproductive pursuit, fishing. But, you know, it's meaningful to them. That's how they choose to spend the surplus. And if a programmer is able to earn enough in 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours, however long they work in a week, and have time left over, and then they go and do something like make uh, node copters that can play catch with each other in a ball or whatever else it is that they want to do. Make a, what did I see the other day that was really interesting? I don't think this was programmed in JavaScript, but this is an idea of the same sort of playfulness. Somebody made a Lego Mindstorms thing that could solve a Rubik's Cube in a couple of seconds. Basically, you've generated surplus and you're using it. And that is kind of what we humans do. We have our surplus and we use it on unproductive pursuits. Some people, you know, try to be more productive with it, but ultimately you end up with some surplus. And to my mind, there's, there's no difference. There's no less laudable to make, you know, a Lego machine that solves a Rubik's Cube or to make somebody made a Turing machine in Minecraft. I myself, what do I do with my spare time? I programmed both in CoffeeScript and then again in JavaScript, a hash life implementation, you know, game of life with an infinitely scrolling plane where you can do stuff like look ahead billions of generations to see how things turn out just because the algorithm's interesting. To me, there's no difference between that and going to play golf or going to watch football on TV. You're using your surplus for recreational pursuits. It's just that you find hacking with JavaScript on a piece of hardware or something more interesting than hitting a ball and such that it drops into a hole. I'm not going to say that what you're doing is more useful. It might be. Maybe it isn't more useful than dropping a ball into a hole, but it certainly makes you no less human than, you know, these business people, politicians, and others that our society admires for putting on ridiculous clothing and going and playing golf. I think it's that they've been driven mad by years of dealing with browser hacks. <laughs> <laughs> so their only defense is to make circles that when you touch them on the computer, it causes a robot to whack you in the face with a Cheeto. <laughs> I saw that. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeto bot, huh? Yep. It reflects the absurdity of the world. Well, in the 70s, I saw an art project that was done in cooperation with some MIT engineers. And they had one of those robot arms, you know, the really old school ones that it can only move within sort of a cube of space. And it, and it has like wires and things overhead. And so it can reach down, pick things up, move them over and drop them somewhere within kind of the coordinate grid. And they had all these foam cubes, and the robot arm had a TV camera, and what it would do, it would pile the cubes up into little stacks, it would stack the cubes, and then it would stop. But what they'd also done is they'd also put a bunch of gerbils in the cage who would run around knocking the cubes down. And there was a huge amount of programming involved at the time in, in machine vision and programming and so on, and the code was written in Lisp. Uh, I think it was Terry Winograd's Sherdlou or something, and you can... Marvin Minsky has a book, The Society of Mind, which is about goal-seeking and problem-solving software that they were writing in those days. And they put all of these great minds and, you know, leading-edge technology at the time to work on piling up foam cubes just so that gerbils could knock them down again. And it's always been one of my favorite kind of pieces of art, remembering back to it, because it pretty much describes what I do every day. Where, you know, we write these things, and they become obsolete. They're like soap bubbles. They look beautiful for a little while, and then they pop. You know, but that's okay. I thought you were trying to imply that your coworkers were gerbils. Absolutely not. I, I <laughs> no, I know several <laughs> GitHubbers. They're pretty sharp people. 
Yeah, GitHub is not a good place to take your imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy to feel intimidated, but they're good people, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So any other hijinks in the community that you guys want to talk about? Should we talk about my picks? Yeah, let's go ahead and do the picks. Go ahead, Reg. I have three picks, which I uh, have up in my browser. So the first one, it might be the same as I did before. I picked a book, I picked a library, and I picked a video. So the book is Michael Fogus's Functional JavaScript. I'm sure that's been discussed. He may even have been a guest here. But I bring it up because I read it when he first wrote it. And then, you know, I've been doing some work in the area and so on. And then I came back and reread it again. And it felt like almost like a sixth sense. Oh, wait a second. There's this whole other part of the book that I'm sure I've read these words, but they didn't strike me the same way. So my message to anybody is if you have already read it, but it's been a while, read it again with fresh eyes. And if you haven't read it, you know, get the first one in so that you can read it again six months later or a year later. So that's my first pick. My second pick as a library, when I was at the Future JS in Barcelona, David Nolan, who's a big closure script guy, speaking of compiled to JS languages, he was talking about the benefits of having immutable data structures. And there's a huge library built into closure and closure script that's really awesome. I mean, it's more than just, oh yeah. A list that compiles the JavaScript. That's almost like a programming 101 exercise. However, a list that compiles the JavaScript with this massive immutable data structures library attached to it. Aha. Anyways, David Nolan also wrote something called Mori, which is a port of the closure script immutable data structures library to JavaScript. In other words, it takes what is already there and then it's wrapped with a bunch of JavaScript APIs so that if you're not into programming with closure script, you can use these. I think, A, that it's a good idea to use this, and B, even if inconvenient for you to use this, it's an extremely good idea to read about it and to read about immutable data structures, not just from a functional programming perspective, but even if you are working with non-functional paradigms. This is a really, I think, the word I'm looking for is a fertile area to read about. You can't help but read about it and start thinking about other things. Uh, in my own case, when thinking about this from a data structures perspective, it led me to start thinking about things like, instead of monkey patching, as we call it, classes when doing things like aspect-oriented programming, what if we just made a copy of the class? Or we made a wrapper that goes around the class that so the original isn't touched, but we have a new sort of flavor or version of the class that has these changes in it. So I think it's a really fertile area to think about, and thus I recommend Mori as the library. That kind of interests me and I think may interest listeners. And finally, a non-JavaScript video. I was just at the Norwegian Developers Conference, NDC Oslo, and they had a full functional programming track. I was in the JavaScript track. And Joe Armstrong, the creator of Erlang, was speaking there. He is an industry treasure. And he did an amazing talk called The Mess We're In, talking about systemic problems with the industry. And although it's not JavaScript specific, I think this is a good one for people who just want to step back for a second and kind of get a fresh perspective from someone who's been involved in the industry for a long time and has one of those really fresh, you know, Erlang was a really fresh new take from a completely new direction, not just a sort of mishmash of the same old, same old. It's a functional programming language, but it's not a direct descendant of the ML family of languages or the list families. It's its own thing. And Joe has a really fresh perspective, and I, I really recommend taking the time to watch this video from start to finish. Very cool. I'll have to check those out. Jameson, what are your picks? I have four picks. 
my first pick is a Chrome extension called Tab Corral. So I have tab ADD and I'll have dozens or hundreds of tabs open, but I never go back and read them. I mean, if I, if I really need it, I can find it again. So Tab Corral is just an extension that automatically closes tabs after you haven't been to them for an hour. You can put whitelist too, so you can leave your email open if you want, or if you need a certain domain to stay open no matter what. But it really helps me realize when I actually care about things or when I want to care about things. If I think I need to care about something, I'll just leave the tab open but never read it, and Tab Corral tells me, nope, you don't actually care enough to read that. I'll close it for you. So that's helpful. My next one is just a cool code pen demo. I saw someone tweet about it's just CSS3 parallax. I am envious of people with amazing CSS skills because I do not have them. So it's just some really cool parallax scrolling with CSS with kitties as pictures. So it hits all the sweet spots. My third pick is a book called Creativity Inc. It's kind of been going around. Um, people have been talking about it and it's because it's really good. It's by the president of Pixar and it's it's like a business book. So there's some cliched stuff, but it's a pretty good one. And it's a glimpse into this company that shaped my childhood because I really loved Pixar movies growing up. So that's a good read. And then my last pick is <laughs> it's this anime called Kill la Kill. I don't watch a lot of anime, but someone recommended this to me. If you've ever seen an episode of Dragon Ball Z and thought, this is ridiculous. How can they not know how stupid this looks? Kill a Kill is an anime by someone who thought that and then was like, I'm going to make a joke anime about how ridiculous anime is. Yeah, so it's really good. That's it. All right. AJ, what are your picks? So I don't think I've mentioned this before on picks, but Google has an image resize service, resize and caching service. And sometimes when you've got a bunch of big images and you don't really want to like run image magic or whatever, you just want things to be good enough for now, you can prefix your image URL with Google's image resize URL, then you get small images and they load fast and it looks cool. Because if you're ever trying to demo a site to somebody and you have the big high res images and then it takes like six seconds for it to load, it's not as cool. So I took that and then I wrapped it a little bit and I've started using it in my blog that I only update like once a year now. <laughs> Need to get back on that. But I created a repo that's resized as a service where it will download the image for you in case the site, if you're, you know, in the case of a blog, if you're using it on a site or grabbing an image from a site that maybe that site at some point no longer wants to give you that image, then you have a local copy of it but then it serves it through the Google image resizer. So guaranteed to have the image and guaranteed to be a lot smaller. Other than that, Firefox OS is something that everybody should kind of look into. It's kind of cool. And one neat thing about it is if you build your web app in the Firefox OS with their build tools, it will work on Firefox OS. It'll also help you package it for iOS and for Android, and then it will work as a regular web app as well. All right. I'm going to pick a couple of books. The first one is the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson. I've really been enjoying it. I just find business people fascinating and Steve Jobs was rather unique. And so, uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about how that went. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. The other book is called The Miracle Morning, and it's by Hal Elrod. 
And it's basically a series of practices to start your day that make your day better. And I've been doing it for a few days and it's just been really good and makes my days just go a ton better. So I'm not going to give everything away. It does involve getting up early and doing a couple of things right. And I highly, highly recommend you go pick it up and read it. So uh, go check that out. I'll put links to all this in the show notes. And thanks for coming again, Reg. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. It's always fun to talk to you, and you always have a great perspective on things. So we look forward to talking to you again. I'm looking forward to coming back. Be well, everybody. All right. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. Yeah.